0: While the people remain at a safe distance, Moses spends most of the next 10 chapters of the book of Exodus up a mountain with God. This doesn't make for the most scintillating action sequences, but it does provide at least two of the world's most prominent religions with a code for life. What makes it noteworthy for modern readers is that this is one of the oldest written legal codes in the world, and unlike older legislature like the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, Much of it is still current law for many Jews and Muslims. What is also interesting is that this is a code that has fairness at its core. Many of these rules are ones that affect the people at the bottom of the social food chain, who are often vulnerable and at the mercy of forces far more powerful than they are. After years spent denied any human rights in Egypt, justice is finally coming the Israelites way. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 21, Death or Money? Amazing, you're all still here. There's no quick way to get from Genesis to Exodus, and it's nice to take the time and enjoy the scenery, especially as things are slowing down a little. Think of the podcast as a luxury Lexus hauling you along a long straight road. Enjoy the comfy seats, the climate control and the purr of the engine. I am your entertainment through the Bible lands of Exodus. Oh, and if you're new to the podcast, we left the religion back home. Oops. Now, back to a mountain in Sinai. to the book of Exodus, Moses is told by God that his appearance on the mountain should be enough for the Israelites to know that he stands above other gods. This should drive home to them why no images of any god should ever be made out of gold and silver or be worshipped alongside him. Moses is to make an altar out of earth and this is to be used to make offerings to God. These are described as burnt offerings and fellowship offerings although no further description of what these look like is given at this point. However, readers are told that they involve sheep, goats and cattle being offered up to God. God sanctions the building of other altars, but these can't be erected willy-nilly. He will decide where they should be placed. These should be made with rough stones. If they're dressed with fancy brickwork or other designs, they will be considered defiled. This may be because God's altars don't need man's intervention to make them better or more holy than they already are. Rough stones are enough, anything else is showing off. As a final nod to the sanctity of these altars, no one is to climb steps to work on their construction, as those below might cop an unwanted eiffel of their private parts while they do so. God then lays down the laws that will give structure to the nation of Israel and which millions of Jews still follow today. This is also where the Bible slows as the action ends and it is at this point that many first-time readers put the book back on the shelf with a mental note to maybe finish later. This is a shame as the laws paint a vivid picture of life in a late Bronze Age nomadic community. Why else would the first rules be aimed at the correct treatment of servants? Any Hebrew slave should be freed after seven years of service. If a slave is a man who arrived in the household married, his wife should be freed with him. But if he has been given a wife since joining the household, the wife and any children must remain. If the man loves his wife and doesn't want to leave, his master must hammer an awl, a small pointed tool used in leather making, through his earlobe as judges look on. The man will then be his master's servant for life. Female servants must count amongst the most vulnerable minorities in a patriarchal society, but are offered an element of protection. The suggestion here is that these women are concubines, a combination of housemaid and secondary wife. Ah, but wait a minute, some of you might be saying. If God is making rules for men with multiple wives, doesn't this mean that he endorses polygamy? That's one possible read, but what seems more likely is that he is protecting women in these relationships from ruin and destitution. This is why they are not to be simply cast adrift after seven years. If a master is unhappy with his female servant, he is to let someone from her family buy her freedom, Though, if she has been sold into slavery, it's most likely because her family had no money in the first place. The woman's master is not allowed to sell her to foreigners, as this would violate her religion as a Hebrew. And, if he gives her to his son, it must be as a wife. He must then treat her as his daughter. If the man remarries, he mustn't deprive the concubine of food, clothing or conjugal rights. If he fails to honour this agreement, he has to let the woman go without her needing to repay him a penny. It's a far cry from the rights enjoyed by 21st century women. But in a culture where women are seen as second best and servants a little better than livestock or other property, it's a huge step towards being recognised as a protected group. Taking a life is viewed as seriously in Moses' time as it is today. Anyone who murders someone is to be put to death, God says, as should anyone who kidnaps someone, regardless of whether the victim has been sold on or not. The same punishment is to be inflicted on anyone who curses or attacks either of their parents. This shows the high regard God places on the family unit and how important it is to him that it keeps its integrity. The thinking is that if the family collapses, then so does society. However, if a person kills someone accidentally, God has set aside a special place where they can go until the dust settles and they can receive a fair trial. These places are called cities of refuge and are designated once Israel finally has land of its own. If someone wounds another person in a fight and their opponent is bedridden as a result, They are off the hook only if the person who they wounded recovers well enough to walk around with a stick. They must compensate the victim for any loss of earnings and make sure that they recover completely. Beating slaves, however, is acceptable as long as the slave recovers after a couple of days. Any master who overdoes the beating and kills their slave must be punished. This is not punishment by death, though. Slaves are still seen as property rather than people. Should a fight ensue and a pregnant woman sustains an injury that leads to premature childbirth, the woman's husband has the right to exact damages. If tragedy strikes and the child dies, then the full weight of the law falls on the guilty party. As Exodus describes it, this involves life for life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a wound for a wound, a burn for a burn, and a bruise for a bruise. Many today see an eye for an eye as simply a green light for retaliation, but it seems that God has no such thing in mind. Any punishment should be proportionate, and the idea is much more one of reciprocal justice. As such, it forms a safeguard against people running wild and taking matters into their own hands whilst they are still extremely angry. Latin nerds will know that the official term for the eye for an eye rule is lex talonis, but they might not know that there is no evidence that this law was ever applied literally. Slave owners who hurt their indentured servants so badly that they lose an eye or a tooth must compensate them for their loss, then set them free. The sense is that slaves are sentient and cannot be abused by violent or sadistic masters. Just as treating slaves fairly is important, taking care of any livestock that is living in close quarters with humans is vital. An adult bull can be a ferocious opponent, and should a rogue animal gore someone fatally, it needs to be stoned to death and the meat thrown away. However, the owner shouldn't be held liable unless the bull has already been identified as having an attitude problem. If insufficient effort has been made to keep him penned in before he breaks out and begins his killing spree, his owner must die. This isn't an absolute rule. Money can compensate for the loss if the price is right. If the owner has enough shekels, he or she can buy their life back. The same goes if the bull kills a child. Little ones are as protected as their parents under God's law and they must be compensated by death or money. Again, slaves are treated according to their low status. The owner of a bull who kills a slave must pay 12 ounces of silver, which is compensation for financial loss rather than punishment for manslaughter. The bull still has to die though. If anyone digs a deep hole or leaves one uncovered and an ox or donkey falls in and dies, compensation must be paid and the animal disposed of by the careless party. Keeping on the subject of livestock, if one bull kills another, the live one should be sold and the spoils split between the two parties who should share the meat of the dead animal between them. But if the surviving bull was known for attacking other animals, its owner must replace the bull which it killed and dispose of its carcass. These are all rules which make perfect sense, which encourage a sense of communal responsibility and which ensure that no one is left out of pocket because of someone else's carelessness. At the time that God is speaking with Moses, no one owns anything other than the goods and livestock which they brought with them from Egypt. However, some of the rules given on the mountain look forward to a time when the Israelites are settled and have land of their own. Theft may be prohibited by the Ten Commandments, but that doesn't stop people from helping themselves to other people's property. What these people need is a deterrent. Anyone who steals an ox and kills or sells it must pay the owner back with five oxen or four sheep of the animal that has been disposed of is a sheep. Householders are allowed to protect their property but only to a point. If a thief comes in the night, all bets are off and the intruder is considered fair game. If they come in the daytime, the response needs to be moderate. A thief who is killed in broad daylight is a thief whose life has been unlawfully terminated. Thieves are expected to pay back what they have stolen but if they can't they should be sold as slaves to raise the necessary money. If an animal which they have stolen resurfaces unharmed among their possessions, they should pay back double what they stole. Given that they probably only stole what they didn't already have, slavery seems their only option. And seeing that the Israelite slaves include convicted thieves, slavery appears as much a prison sentence as it does the result of falling on hard times. It's no wonder then that slaves are viewed in such a low light if some of these wageless labourers are convicted robbers and bandits. In what appears to be an early nod to some kind of banking system, Exodus describes a neighbour looking after silver, gold and other goods for another neighbour for safekeeping. If a thief steals the valuables and is caught, they should pay back double. If no thief is found, Judges must decide if it is the banker who has played fast and loose with the property. In any situation where neither party can agree on who owns what, judges need to discern the truth and order the guilty party to pay double to the person who they have tried to swindle. If someone leaves an animal with a neighbour for safekeeping and something happens to it while under their care, the neighbour must swear on oath that they played no part in its death, injury or disappearance the owner has to accept that accidents happen and take a lack of compensation on the chin. If the animal was stolen, this is seen as negligence on behalf of the neighbour who has to pay the owner the value of the creature which they have lost. However, if wild beasts tore the sheep or donkey to pieces, the remains must be shown to the owner as only by doing this will they escape a hefty compensation bill. If anyone borrows an animal from a neighbour and it dies or is injured, they must pay the owner for their loss. If the accident happens while the owner is there, no payment is needed as the owner is just as responsible for the animal's well-being. If the animal was hired, then the assumption is that the owner has calculated the risk of losing it into the cost of the hire, and so no compensation is due. These may be divine laws, but it's all a lot of simple common sense, even though it's unclear how much fire-starting, animal hire or livestock theft is going on within the Israelite camp in the middle of the Sinai Desert. The sense is that these are important rules, many of which are to be filed away for using later. The next bunch of rules handed to Moses by God falls loosely under the banner of responsible living. Casual sex is frowned on by God. If a man makes moves on a young girl who isn't already engaged, he needs to have honourable intentions. If he sleeps with her, he has to pay what Exodus describes as the bride price a gift to her family to make the liaison official. Even if her father refuses to let her marry him, the man or his family must still hand over the money. It's easy to see this rule as a fun-stopper, but in an age before practical contraception, the last thing Moses needs is lots of children running around who have no idea who their fathers are and whose fathers have no responsibility to care or provide for them. Three groups of people are listed as counter to Israel's interest. Women who practice sorcery, a dark art which has its roots in pagan religion, anyone who engages in bestiality, and anyone who offers sacrifices to gods that aren't God. These are all seen as people who the nation can well do without, and despite none of them having killed anyone, they threaten God's chosen order and must be made an example of. Foreigners are to be treated kindly, as the Israelites spent a long time as foreigners in Egypt, where they were initially treated with generosity and hospitality. Anyone who mistreats widows or children with no fathers is warned to treat these with respect and kindness instead. If they don't, God will hear their victims' cries and he will come and kill their tormentor, making his wife a widow and his own children fatherless. No one is to lend money to someone in need if they are a bank. This isn't a business loan, God says, so no interest should be added. A cloak that is given as surety for a loan should be returned at sunset, as this is all a man has to wrap himself up in to keep warm at night. God will hear the cry of any who have been left out in the cold as a result of greedy lenders, and he describes himself as compassionate. Indeed, compassion and kindness certainly seem to be underpinning these initial laws, as God ensures that the lowest and weakest in society are protected. Unsurprisingly, denying God is seen by the Bible as one of the most heinous crimes a person can commit, and God reminds his people again not to engage in blasphemy. A further warning against this is given in the book of Leviticus, when a blasphemer comes face to face with a dramatic intervention. From this point on, the Bible has no time whatsoever for people who want to insult, alter, deny or otherwise mess with God or his message. The Bible believes that there are some sins that are committed due to human weakness or even by accident, but sees blasphemy as utterly deliberate. This is not a half-hearted falling away from a position of faith, nor is it denying God on specific occasions, in the way that the disciple Peter famously does to save his skin during Jesus' trial. Blasphemy is a permanent denial of the power, or even existence, of God, and is understandably looked at in horror by the Bible. With its irreverent stance, blasphemy sits comfortably alongside heresy, not sticking to the script, apostasy, no longer having faith in God, and infidelity, never having faith in the first place. And it's no surprise that a blanket ban on the practice is included in the Ten Commandments, and repeated again here to Moses. And so the laws flow relentlessly, one by one, a bit like a teleprinter, each one filed away and cherished, and each one adding to the big picture that the Israelites are beginning to see of God. God, it appears, has chosen them to be special and set apart from other tribes and nations. For this to work, the people need to be distinctive by their behavior. They must be holy and demonstrate their otherness at every touch point. While many of the rules appeal to basic decency and common kindness, some seem arbitrary, legality just for the sake of it. But it seems that God is shaping his people, transforming them from the rough-edged mob who made bricks in Egypt to a civilised, urbanised, informed and educated nation. A surprisingly modern nation with codes and behaviours unique to the ancient Near East. is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com.